anytime you call or email us, we respond to you within an hour that either it's been received or, you know, we're working on it. Here's an idea of resolution, something along those lines to at least give people, Hey, like you've been heard, we're working on this, that sort of situation so that we can at least have a service level agreement sort of thing. On top of that, just consistent and on time, like clockwork distributions and investor communications aren't sidestepping or or putting, you know, kind of giving people a rose colored glasses sort of situation. I think that our communications has been one of the most consistent positive pieces of feedback I've gotten from our investors is not only the timeliness of them, but the perspective and the thought with which they're written. We don't try, we try and write, you know, our communications from a standpoint that a seasoned syndicator and GP all the way down to a first time passive investor can understand it and make sense of it. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. And I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Justin Liggett today of DJE Texas. You know, we've had Devin Elder on the podcast a couple times. And Justin is a colleague of Devin's and somebody that is, you know, really adding tremendous value from an investor relations perspective with DJE. So whether you are a passive investor an active investor sponsor, you are going to receive tremendous value from today's episode. You are going to learn about a best in class investor experience, what that actually looks like best practices on marketing investment opportunities. You're also going to learn about managing a capital raise, best practices on investor communications, and how that integrates within the team so that you can optimize the investment results of your deals. There's a lot of value in today's episode. You're also gonna learn about how this individual invests in himself specifically and what that does for his energy showing up on a daily basis, being a very dynamic individual that he is. You know, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to learn from today's episode. So buckle up. Today's podcast is so valuable. Elevate podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. And guess what? It's Friday. You got to raise the bar on a Friday. Maybe you had it easy on Monday. Maybe it was a little bit higher on Tuesday, but today you're feeling good. So let's raise the bar. You're probably listening to this on a Tuesday, which is totally fine, but embody that Friday energy because that's what we're doing today on today's podcast. I'm excited to give this to you today. If it's your first time listening to Elevate Podcast, welcome. We're super excited to pour into your cup today. If you've been here before, welcome back. Super excited to pour back into your cup and provide massive value to you. If you're here, you're looking to transform. And if you've transformed in the past, that's amazing. Our transformation never stops. And as investors, as people that are looking to create amazing outcomes and design lives of fulfillment and abundance, you know, it comes down to how are we investing in ourselves? How are we investing in our learning? How are we investing in the way that we think, changing the way that we think, changing the way that we see things, changing the way that we solve problems, changing the way that we 
integrate ourselves within relationships because ultimately it comes down to who are we who are we becoming and that's how we create new results in our business so that's why you're here i'm super excited to support that and be a conduit to that i want to encourage you to pay the fee the fee is to pay it forward share this episode with a friend whether you're watching on youtube or listening on any podcast platform all you have to do is grab the link and send that to someone else send it to one person if you've done that in the past, thank you so much. We invite you to do that again today. It's the only way that we can continue to grow and provide massive value to you is if you introduce us to one other person. So pay the fee and introduce us to one other person. Tell them about this podcast and give them the link and the opportunity to learn today. Also want to invite you, if you have not done so already, please give us a rating, review, and subscribe or follow LV Podcasts on wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to Justin Liggett, who is the Director of Investor Relations for DJE Texas Management Group and is responsible for creating and executing the firm's client experience. He brings over 23 years of marketing, fundraising, and investor relations experience in the financial services and investment industry. You can learn more about DJE Texas at djetexas.com. And of course, we'll put links in the show notes where you can find Justin and the rest of their team. So without further ado, please enjoy this very insightful conversation with Justin Liggett. Justin Liggett. Welcome to Elevate, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm excited. We got a nice little Friday energy here. I think uh, you and I were having a little bit of fun. We were, uh, I was confirming, you know, how to pronounce your last name. And you're like, unfortunately, it's not legit, you know? And I'm like, oh, man. But, you know, you're, you're kind of legit. What do you think? I do consider myself very legit, almost too legit but I must not quit. Man, I'm excited to uh, introduce you to Elevate Nation. And while we do that, I mean, talk a little bit about your upbringing, your backstory, um, so the listeners can kind of understand sort of where you came from. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and went to school here in Central Texas, also closer to a place that used to be called uh, Southwest Texas State University. It's now Texas State University. They went through a whole rebranding around the time that I left. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a Texas boy and have lived in most of the major places here in Texas, Dallas, Houston, Austin, and whatnot. But I uh, I grew up and I was an artist. I kind of like focus all through high school and everything like that and most of college. Um, but at the last minute, I kind of had a, a crisis of kind of like direction, I think, especially from an artistry standpoint, I didn't really feel very strongly about like what I was doing. I was designing, doing graphic design at the time. And um, it just didn't feel like that was what I was supposed to be doing. And um, moved over to finance kind of in a knee jerk sort of way. And um, that's kind of a whole funny story itself, showing up in the business school, kind of like in painting clothes. And they think that you're actually there to paint the building, not like your major. But yeah, you know, I crammed like two, three years school into about a year and a half kind of thing and um, went into the investment management side of the business, uh, got series seven and 66 licensed and was a consultant and kind of moved more, you know, into that side of the business and uh, in the marketing side and also the internal sales side. But ultimately, kind of around 2011, had kind of a, a moment where I was really kind of put into a place where I was working between the marketing organization and the sales organization of a large broker dealer, registered investment advisor. And that was really kind of a moment where, you know, in my career, where I got to start pulling on both sides of my professional and personal skill set, personal as an artist and just my creative background and ability to do art direction and work with creative people and things of that nature, but also at the same time to work with people who are very product minded, they were very service and client oriented and things of that nature. And so I was a really kind of good liaison person or kind of like a buffer person between those two organizations that just have very different mindsets and just have very different styles of work. Um, and I've always just kind of been able to work really well between those two different areas or mindsets or whatever you want to call it. 
And so like, you know, that kind of led me to more of a marketing side of the business and um, a number of different roles that were really kind of related to branding at a high organizational level. And then also for a lot of um, financial services firms. And then at that point, really, I started moving over to private equity in the 2016, 2017 time period, helped a firm create private market multifamily REIT. And then about two and a half years ago, uh, joined up here in San Antonio, Texas with DJE Texas Management Group. And I head up their investor relations. Man, I love it. I feel like we just read your biography in like the matter of 45 seconds. <laughs> we got it all. Whenever you're in this business, you have to have an elevator speech. <laughs> you know, one thing I actually wanted to go into a bit deeper is, so first of all, it's a very unique background to be an artist in graphic design, migrating over to finance, doing what you did in terms of investment management, and, you know, obviously working through private equity now in real estate. You know, one thing I'd love to kind of dive into just a bit in terms of your experience and the learning and the growth that occurred throughout that entire journey. One of the things is like the brain, the way the brain works between the left hemisphere, the right hemisphere in terms of that creative skill set and, you know, more of a sort of a management perspective as well. I mean, like the creative side and the management side and finance and the way that you're thinking about all of these things. I mean, integrating those hemispheres is not an easy thing to do. But I mean, talk to me about your experience there. It used to be incredibly exhausting and it, like all the mind shifts and like kind of like focus shifts that I would go through. And I didn't really have a whole lot of context whenever I was younger, whenever I would go through those while well, I'd be so exhausted by them. But, you know, over the years, I've just developed a lot, just good behaviors, habits and things of that nature. Boundaries as well is a really big part of being able to fire on both sides of, of your brain, for lack of a better term. One of the things that I just really kind of noticed is that I, while having the ability to do that, you know, it's like I have to be really mindful of of like, what are the things that really kind of serve me um, internally or um, physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, all of those things outside of these four walls of this building? What are the things that I have to do out there in order to be able to have the energy and to have the right sort of mindset and outlook to come in here and to get, you know, like right monthly investment update to my investors that really kind of encapsulates down what's happened in the last month at that asset and then shift and go line by line and do a distribution for a project that's 200 positions long. Those kind of shifts are very, very taxing, very exhausting sometimes. It's no different than I think what a lot of people experience whenever they go from doing the tasks of their daily job and then they go to a networking event in the evening and they feel totally exhausted afterwards. So those kind of things, you know, it's like, it, it's very natural to me um, as as far as just kind of being able to step out of that situation and kind of like be like, who am I working with right now? Who am I collaborating with? If it's a creative person, just being kind of mindful of who they are, what they need or what I used to need whenever I was in that situation in order to feel included in the conversation and uh, the process. Or if it's, you know, a really analytical person or a C-suite executive, you know, what are the sort of things that you need to be thinking about before you walk into that meeting? So, I mean, I think it's really just kind of like each time that you're kind of going from traversing from one side of the brain to the other, just taking five to 10 minutes to just, you know, have some downtime, get out of your own skin, you know, take a deep breath, whatever it is, meditate, and just really think about what you're going to be doing next and be mindful of that. That's like what's been most beneficial to me is just giving myself a little bit of buffer time between each shift. Um, so that I can approach that with the right sort of energy and attention to detail. I think the, you know, the five to 10 minute break deal is something that not enough of us take regularly in our days, you know, throughout the week and, you know, ongoing. And so that's a really good reminder, you know, because a lot of us, we have, you know, we wear many different hats.
hats, right? We have different set of responsibilities that require a different set of genius. And I think to be high performers, we've got to recognize that we need a downshift before we get into another gear. And so I think that that is a really valuable share. But also, you talked about a few things I wanted to kind of go a little bit deeper on in terms of like meeting with different type of people being an investor relations director, you know, obviously, you've got a realm of different type of investors and partners that you guys partner with. And you talked about, you know, thinking about who it is that you're meeting with prior to what is their perspective? One of the things that I've found to be very valuable is obviously remain yourself, always be yourself, but also how does this person want to be communicated with? What is their perspective? What are their challenges? What are their opportunities? And leaning into that and, and almost kind of being a bit of a chameleon in terms of the way that you communicate. Does that resonate with you? Very much. One of those nicknames that I didn't mention that we were talking about earlier is uh, Coyote. My friends kind of call me the Coyote uh, just because it's almost like a shapeshifter kind of uh, mentality. One of the ways that my creativity really informs my uh, professional demeanor and the way that I approach meeting with people, interacting with people, collaborating with people is that my intuition, my intuitive side on my creative side is very much informing my professional side. And especially whenever I'm meeting with investors and trying to you know, forge new relationships and really just trying to identify, is this a fit for both sides of the, the fence, you know, for both parties? And is this going to be a successful partnership for, for both parties? That's one thing that is just kind of firing on that I'm drawing off of my intuition and like just kind of general feelings about like what this person wants from DJE, what we want from this person kind of thing. Is there a potential for collaboration and partnership and those kind of things. It's like, you know, it's not disingenuous. Like you talked about, it's not inauthentic. It's not like you're not being yourself, but you're just trying to basically make the most of the conversation and make sure that both parties walk away from it feeling as good as they can about it. Talk to me about boundaries, because that was one of the things that you talked about in terms of being able to shift and being able to shift gears and bring your genius to all the different responsibilities that you have. Could you talk to me? What, what do you mean by boundaries? I mean, how does that serve you and what does that look like? I mean, boundaries can be anything as simple and as, and as explicit as what we talked about as the five to 10 minute, you know, buffer zones. I mean, I build that into my calendar. I have a it built into my calendar five to 10 minutes before and after any time I have a call scheduled through that system, I'm off limits kind of thing as far as that they're concerned or as far as my calendar is concerned. So that's one way that I'm doing it is just making sure that I'm at least giving myself a couple minutes to breathe, maybe respond to an email so that I'm not like running around frantic for the rest of the day just because I got off schedule and I didn't give myself enough time to prepare for what's next after a call. Can I ask you, I mean, just real quick on that, the strategy in that buffer zone, it could be either just breathing and just taking a break, or it could just be answering an email or two. Is that right? Can be just like kind of giving myself enough time so that I'm not overwhelming myself throughout the day with, you know, if I get stacked up on calls and then all my admin stuff starts stacking up in the afternoon. That allows me to just have some little pockets of time that I can manage my schedule and my workload a little bit more effectively. That makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, otherwise it's, you know, just me knowing myself well enough to know that every day I have to go outside and I have to do something active for at least an hour. And I got to, even if I'm on a fundraise and I'm looking at, you know, I got red in my ledger kind of thing, I got to get out there and I got to do that because if I don't do that, I'm probably not going to sleep well that night. And if I don't sleep well that night, then I can't hit it first thing in the morning. Just knowing those things about yourself, being able to not only set expectations and set boundaries with yourself and with those people around you that are relying on you, especially during important times like a fundraiser, I think is very, very important just to, for setting yourself up to be successful. I totally agree, man. And what we're talking about is, you know, how to be dynamic. 
And, you know, a lot of this stuff is it's being proactive and investing in your longer term energy so that you can shift gears appropriately. So I think that's a really valuable share in thinking about, hey, I've got to invest in my own sort of, you know, body, you know, I've got to invest in my in my body, which then leads to my mindset, which then leads to my ability to utilize those buffer zones appropriately so that I can then resonate with who I'm dealing with and serve that individual from a creative perspective and or from a systematic perspective. But man, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about your transition from wealth management to the real estate industry. I mean, because, you know, it's almost like a, a larger scale sort of mental dexterity shift that you had to go through. So talk to me about that experience and what that was like for you. I had spent, I would say by the time I, I left like the wealth management side of the business, 15 to 17 years, I'd been in that business, just in a number of different disciplines and roles. And I really kind of thought that that was going to be my business. But, you know, by the time it was all said and done, I'd kind of gotten a little disillusioned, to be honest with you, with um, not feeling like my efforts, the contributions I was making was really making a big, big difference in the bottom line of like the end user, the end investor, because I wasn't seeing the connection between the stuff that I was designing and, and or approving, you know, this very sort of aspirational people on boats sailing imagery kind of stuff on brochureware. And then like, you know, seeing returns or what people are netting on their portfolios and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not seeing the connection between those two, between this imagery and the reality of what people are receiving, you know, in this kind of part of the business. So it was really kind of, once again, my second kind of crisis of kind of conscious and creativity was that, you know, do I want to stay in this business that I don't know if I totally believe in and I'm not being fully fulfilled by? And that was really kind of, I, I took about a year or so, I think, where I was just kind of doing some creative consulting and consulting for some wealth management firms on the side. And then that's when I moved over into the private equity side of the business and in helping a firm get SEC approval and break escrow and, and basically start a private market reg A plus multifamily REIT. And that really kind of reinvigorated my, my passion for this business because it was a very altruistic and kind of like, product had a very like low minimum and it was allowing people to really kind of participate in multifamily um, real estate for the first time. And I really liked that aspect of it. And I really like kind of the impetus behind the product, but it was really kind of more of a, I was consulting for them kind of thing. And then whenever I hooked up here with Devin down in San Antonio about two and a half years ago, and we really started working together, that's what really kind of reignited the fire as far as my personal and professional fulfillment in this business and the difference that I was making, because I was actually forming real close substantive relationships with these individuals that we were and these investors that we were working with. And I was able to actually see and hear the difference that it was making. And so, you know, I, I think I had probably kind of gotten to a point in the wealth management world where I was. I'd lost kind of con that connection with the, the investor and the consumer kind of thing, kind of starting over from not from scratch, but starting over in a different sort of realm or a different sort of part of the business um, has really kind of lit that fire again for me. Man, that says a lot about you, you know, really having that sort of alignment of the fulfillment of your life with the outcomes of the people that you're working with previously, which then caused you to ask these very powerful questions of, hey, do, you know, do I want to stay in this? And as you transition into real estate, I mean, I'd love to know, I mean, what do you think is the difference of, I know my answers, I know what I would say to this, you know, the difference in terms of the outcomes of people investing in a tangible asset, such as multifamily real estate versus what you were doing previously. I mean, why do you think the outcomes are so different and what have you seen? 
I mean, there's so many different outcomes. I feel like there's, especially the way that we try and approach it, just as much, if not more transparency to the asset and to the performance of the asset that people are getting in the mountains of pages that they're getting from a disclosure and financial performance document through registered broker dealer or public equities kind of situation. I feel like people, you know, the way that we try and approach the business of just approaching it more simply and just with the investor in mind, as far as how we communicate with them is light years beyond just like the amount of financial reporting regulation that people, that private and public equity markets are um, really kind of under enforced to adhere to. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying like, you know, you're just supposed to skirt reporting and things of that nature. That's not what I'm saying, but I just feel like the way that we're able to approach these sort of things allows people for a greater level of transparency and also connection with people like me that can give them the essential story of what's going on, boots on the ground sort of style. But then on top of that, you're talking about like, you know, real alpha as far as, you know, upside profit, participating in profits once we do go full cycle, actual, in our case, monthly income and distributions in the form of preferred distributions, tax benefits via a K-1 because we do a cost segregation study on each of our properties on a yearly basis. You know, and so like all of those things really start to add up as far as like real benefits whenever you, you know, compare them side by side against stock investing or bond investing or mutual fund investing or things that are available through the public equities market. Um, and so like those are a lot of things that, you know, especially for people in certain situations, the, the tax benefits aspect and things of that nature make exponential sort of effects on their bottom line. And as they start to do that over and over again, for example, with us and other operators, it really, really adds up. It's exponential to a certain extent. Extent. But at the same time, the, I do still love the fact that this part of the pie works so, so well with everything else you're supposed to be doing in the portfolio, your mutual funds, your employer sponsored plans, your individual stock holdings, your precious metals, your valuables, your art, whatever it is, it all needs, to, it, it all should be part of the plan. And I'm a real, real big advocate of, you know, like team-based selling and having a team, whether it's a CPA, you know, your operator or GP, as far as your real estate investments, your lawyer, your financial advisor, or CFP or whoever it is, all those people, you know, should be working in concert. Um, and I'm a big believer in that. And, I'm, and I don't think that you should sidestep any one part of that pie, for lack of a better term, as far as where you're investing, because, you know, at certain times, one part of that pie might not perform as, as well as the other. And you have to have non-correlated assets that are going to ride out economic cycles like we're in right now. Yeah, I agree. One of the things too, that I would just add to what you just shared in terms of the benefits and, and why, you know, it, this type of allocation as an investor via LP investments passively with a group like DJE or CF Capital, you know, in addition to all the things you shared, such as cash flow and tax benefits and all of these beautiful things, transparency, also learning, I mean, there is so much to be learned when it comes to monthly communications, you know, having access to the financial performance of the asset, asking questions directly to that operator. Um, the other thing, too, is obviously, and this is maybe a little bit corny, but real estate is tangible. You can touch it. You can feel it. You need to drive by. If you want to drive by, if you want to go take a look at it, you want to go take a look at some of the available units. As an investor, you know, we always we, we let that sort of access, you know, be had by investors. You know, less people ask for it than we sort of expect. But you know, that is something that's accessible. The other thing, the last thing, there's many others perhaps, but relationships. I mean, at the end of the day, it's who, not how, you know, who is it that's helping you get to your how, your outcomes, your financial goals. And we're not giving financial advice today. We're not giving investment advice, but I think what you're sharing, you know, you're, you're providing a clue into in terms of bringing the best of your prior experience and adding and stacking onto that now. 
And one of the things that I'd love to hear from you, I know that what you guys do, and this is similar to what we try to do, is provide a best-in-class investor experience because we truly value those relationships. We truly appreciate the people who place their hard-earned capital with us to invest in particular opportunities in real estate investments. So talk to me about what does a best-in-class investor experience look like from your end? Anytime you call or email us, we respond to you within an hour. That either it's been received or you know we're working on it, here's an idea of resolution, something along those lines to at least give people, hey, like you've been heard, we're working on this, that sort of situation so that we can at least have a service level agreement sort of thing. On top of that, just consistent and on time, like clockwork distributions and investor communications aren't sidestepping or putting, you know, kind of giving people a rose colored glasses sort of situation. I think that our communications has been one of the most consistent positive pieces of feedback I've gotten from our investors is not only the timeliness of them, but the perspective and the thought with which they're written. We don't try, we try and write, you know, our communications from a standpoint that a seasoned syndicator and GP all the way down to a first time passive investor can understand it and make sense of it. Um, It's not a situation where we're trying to beat people over the head with acronyms and verbiage that they don't understand yet. That kind of mentality, I think goes a long way as far as consideration with our investors. But then on top of that, just we, you know, we send and our money on time kind of thing. You know, and that goes a long way with people as well. On top of that, I think it's just basically making sure that we're approaching all of our deals from a standpoint that it's consistent with our values, you know, and kind of like this mentality of abundance and that all boats rise or that all parties win sort of situation. Um, And we're really just trying to make sure that on all of our projects that we're hitting kind of those things and making sure that they're consistent. How does the mentality of abundance play into that first class experience for investors? I mean, is it truly, you know, it's it's just playing the long game or how does that actually manifest in the day-to-day decision-making of your team? Well, I mean, we want all parties to win. We want investors, DJE, and the community to win. And when all three of those things win on one of our projects, then, I mean, hypothetically, you're talking I mean, about better projects that are performing at a higher level, generating more profits. And those profits go in to help fund grants through the DJE Foundation, for, for example. And so not only are we like improving the community at a very real, immediate level here in San Antonio, but taking those profits and then also reinvesting them into you know other nonprofits throughout the country, like Aid the Silent and things of that nature. So that, I mean, there's a very, very real impact that the mentality and mindset of abundance creates where you're just saying, listen, we want this project to yield a result where all parties win. Those three parties are the ones that I really kind of just described. I love that. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out CF Capital. CF Capital is the premier boutique real estate investment firm in the Midwest and Southeast region of the United States. We are a national real estate investment firm with a purpose We provide property investment and asset management solutions to help passive investors maximize returns on high value multifamily communities. But our investments go far beyond acquisitions. We invest in people. We are in the business of elevating communities and raising the bar for everyone within our ecosystem. CF Capital is a real estate investment firm focused on the acquisition and operation of multifamily assets. We confidently deliver tax advantage, stable cash flow, and capital appreciation with a margin of safety. By investing alongside our team, investors can preserve and grow their wealth without having to deal with tenants, termites, or toilets. Investors come and stay for the outsized returns we create in our deals while appreciating the ancillary opportunity to make a bigger impact that only CF Capital can provide. If you're an investor and want to invest with us, here's how. Learn more about CF Capital at cfcapllc.com or by simply clicking the link in the show notes 
of this episode. We will see you on the inside of this powerful community. So let's elevate communities together. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was marketing investment opportunities, because you're bringing this creative background, this artist, you know, into this experience that you've shared with us so far. And obviously, the ongoing experience of doing the right thing by your investors, the community, and obviously your team, you know, you're never going to have those opportunities unless you properly market the opportunities to your investor community. So talk to me about your philosophies, your strategies, your principles towards effectively marketing investment opportunities with DJ. I mean, I think that it goes both ways. You have to know like, what, how does marketing play in your firm and also with your client base? So I think one of the areas that I'm really good is knowing like where are the areas where we should be pushing the envelope as far as design, you know, you know more content as far as if it's a, a new investment or something of that nature. But at the same time, also like what are the sort of things that you're working on designing or whatever it is from a content standpoint? And does it play well with your with your investors, essentially with your audience. And so having that kind of mindset of like, you know, is my home base, is my boss going to like this? And also, are my investors going to like this? That really kind of gives you a good idea of what prioritization looks like in your world as far as a marketer is concerned. I've had a lot of luck, I think, just with like knowing which windmills to charge in marketing. And like knowing like when something is just making it pretty versus when is something actually contributing to the bottom line experience of what somebody is having whenever they're looking at something. So, I mean, though, that's kind of one area where I think uh, from a marketing standpoint, um, I really seem to excel and, and like that we really kind of seem to cut through a lot of ineffective stuff and minutia here, especially. But I think that on top of that, once again, it really kind of flows from the same sort of perspective that we have on the communications that whenever we're designing something and that whenever we're writing something, does it meet that goal of being able to speak to all those different audiences that are inherent in our investor base? And then from there, it really kind of just creates a baseline experience, I think, to where um, people just, I you know, kind of feel included, but also feel like it's something that, that's easily digestible for them. I think that when things are just kind of designed from a standpoint of consideration for your entire audience, and you're able to actually do it to in a way that fires on all those audiences, it's just, it, it goes down easy for people. Yeah. And it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think anybody's really thinking about it that hard sometimes. But on top of that, other things, you know, that I, that I kind of stick to is like, don't use stock photography if you can stand it. Like if you have stuff, use it. If you don't have stuff, start taking pictures. Those sort of things, they, you know, they, they're, they add up over time. And on top of that, you're eventually going to need some sort of library of imagery um, that is not stock photography. Why is that important? Is that because you could just feel the, you know, the fakeness of a stock image and, you know, that's really the opposite of the essence of what you're trying to communicate is, you know, realness and so forth. Yeah. I mean, like for us, it allows us to really kind of demonstrate what our culture is and who we look like or what we look like whenever we're out of the office or or what we look like when we're in the office. I mean, depending on what the piece is, you know, um, I think that just stock imagery sometimes I, I get it. Like there's always a time and a place for it. And whenever you use it tastefully in the right what sort of way, it could be totally fine. But I think that, you know, whenever there's an opportunity to do something more personalized and specific that allows you to kind of connect faces with names and that kind of thing, it's always a better move over stock photography unless you're sacrificing quality drastically. That's a great chair. What other principles are, you know, things that are really close and near and dear to your heart as you're thinking about marketing, whether it's investment opportunities or even just marketing the brand as you're continuing to grow the company? I mean, are there other principles that are like, hey, these are non-negotiables? I don't know if there are any sort of principles that are non-negotiable. I always try and err on simpler and I hate glossy stuff. Probably the only ones that are really hard, hard nose for me. I like harder, like heavier card stock, matte prints, 
for if you're going to print anything, I don't want it to look like, you know, this kind of flimsy, glossy kind of one pager that I remember from earlier on in my career. So now transitioning and when we're thinking about marketing and investment opportunity and we go back to the earlier mental dexterity of changing and focusing and shifting. Now, when you market an investment opportunity, you know, from there, you're also managing a capital raise. And so if we're talking to a listener who's either a passive investor, a sponsor, an active investor, I think this will be helpful for them to understand how you and how your group really manages a capital raise because there are processes, there's systems, there are approaches that may work for you that you may have found that don't work for you. Maybe there's things that's like, hey, we've we've kind of migrated, we've made some shifts. But talk to me about managing a capital raise because I think it's helpful for people to understand sort of best practices, but also to understand the bigger picture of how does this whole thing flow together? Because, you know, again, through a syndication, we're all better together. And, you know, understanding this process, I think is helpful. So talk to me a little bit about managing a capital raise and what that looks like from your end. Right. So, I mean, all of this for me is in service of raising money for a project. And so what essentially happens is that, you know, I would say 45 to 60 day sort of process between me and Devin or Devin kind of being like, hey, we got something real here. And then I take a couple of weeks usually to build out all the marketing for it while we're in the process of going under contract, you know, going through the 21 day due diligence process. While they're the, with them and the ops team are out there walking units and doing all those sort of things, I'm behind a screen designing with another person and writing out, you know, what is unique about this investment? What is this investment? And really kind of just trying to encapsulate for the investor, like what is most, you know, what they really want to know um, and what we have as far as information that we could share at the time. So um, I'm building that. I'm also, you know, working with the legal team to gather the private placement memorandum, the operating agreement, subscription agreement, and basically so that I can pull together the fundraising docs is what we call them, which is your offering memorandum or the the pitch deck, um, your PPM, which our PPM is really kind of all those documents that I just mentioned kind of stitched together and offered for signature. And so, and then we usually will also, uh, Devin will record a webinar of him kind of going through the pitch deck and really kind of giving the Cliff's Notes version of, of what he likes about the deal or on that specific slide, kind of giving investors a little bit of a Cliff's Notes on it. And that is really, really helpful. I think more and most of our investors view that webinar most so, more so than just like reading through the actual offering memorandum. But I mean, at that point, I'm taking all of those fundraising documents. And the most important part of a fundraise is having a, an investor portal that will allow you to run that fundraise, communicate with investors investors about all those documents and have a central repository to hold those documents that it's, that's encrypted and has allows you to meet all the SEC substantive relationship rules. And then once they say yes, you have an actual system that allows you to gather signatures on all the documents in a soft copy and then, you know, certify accreditation, all those things. So, I mean, like having good marketing and, you know, good, smart, well-written marketing is very, very important. But like that is the nuts and bolts of the entire fundraise is take, you know, getting on an investor portal platform, some sort of fundraising platform so that you can take those documents and really sell the deal at that point. That is beautiful. Very, very well said. And yeah, I mean, you, you just described it fairly quickly, but it it is, it's a robust process and it's, it's a system. You know, you, you run through this once, you find some hiccups and you improve it and you streamline it and you continue to improve each and every time. One of the things that I've always found to be fascinating just in the capital raising arena is just how closely we bump up on investor psychology and perceptions and emotions, you know, emotions that are underneath the surface. There's always a story beneath the story. You know, like when you talk to an investor and you talk about, well, what are your goals? And typically, 
it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking at increased cash flow, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, okay, well, what's the purpose for that? What are you actually looking to obtain? And, you know, as you go deeper, you start to bump up into investor psychology and some of the thought process and, you know, things that are sort of perhaps on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But I mean, talk to me about how you, and this, by the way, this could fall flat. I mean, I'm talking to you about investor psychology. You're not a psychologist. I totally understand that. But as you encounter so many different investors, talk to me about some of your experience sort of bumping up on that investor psychology and maybe the the myriad of different types of psychologies that you've come across. I mean, I think that it's kind of, it's a collaboration, it's a partnership, right? And we really try and position that to our investors as, as this being a partnership. And like one of the responsibilities that we put on our investors as being part of the partnership is that you're supposed to manage your information, your personal and tax information in the investor portal. We're not your admin administrative assistant. We're not a person to update the routing and account number for your distributions or anything like that. That is your responsibility. And so from whenever I'm having, you know, that substantive relationship call kind of situation. I'm really trying to make sure because we're at a point now to where we, we've grown the business so significantly over the last two and a half years that, that we do want to make sure that investors that we're bringing on in the future have the same sort of personality, mindset, goals, and also really understand what their responsibilities are in the partnership. And so we're really kind of focused on making sure during that call that those sort of things feel right. It's not like a checklist sort of thing or anything like that, but like I being intuitive, have a pretty good feel when somebody is not a fit for us or we're not a fit for somebody else. And so, you know, in those sort of situations, um, it just takes a little bit of a conversation that just is like an honest, but it is an uncomfortable conversation. You kind of share like, well, this is how we tend to carry ourselves in these sort of situations. I'm feeling like this is what the expectation is. Am I misreading this or is this something that we can move forward on as partners? And so like, you know, having those sort of conversations, especially if you're starting starting to feel sort of things very upfront or very early in the conversation, you know, you don't want to to give people an unrealistic expectation about them getting to work with you or vice versa if you just don't feel like it's a fit. So I, I'm the type of person that I don't like to be problem avoidant about uncomfortable conversations or news that I need to give investors. So in those sort of situations, I think that one of the things that resonates not only with our investors, but also the people that we've spoken to in the past is just that we're very upfront and honest about not only the potential to work together, but also um, if there's not. So have you had recent experiences with potential investors that you've respectfully declined? And if so, I mean, what were some of the, give me some look behind the curtain in terms of, hey, you know, what what would make an investor perhaps maybe not the right partner for you guys? In most of the cases, they'd kind of self-selected themselves out of the situation, to be honest with you. And that has really been because really kind of putting up some boundaries as far as like being very upfront about like, this is how we do things. This is what we're doing. And it was kind of like a situation where it was very obvious there wasn't going to be a potential there because it seemed like there wanted to be some sort of negotiation process as far as what returns were like. And I'm like, no, these are what the returns are. Like, it's not, there's no haggling here. So I think in that sort of situation, you know, we, I was just very honest and upfront about like how we do things and how the deals flow, uh, you know, run and so on. And so in that sort of situation, by just being upfront and honest and kind of holding that line, the person really kind of self-selected them out of the conversation. I'm loving this conversation because it's really illustrating the skill set and the dynamic skill set required to do what you do. And there's a lot of gear shifting and some of it are soft skills. Some of it are hard skills. And some of the stuff is, hey, best practices. But also it's every relationship is very nuanced. It is, you know, it's very one to one. And, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to kind of talk to you about and get your input on was, you know, you talked about sort of in that 
uh, best in class investment experience. One of the factors is being consistent in your communication and being fully transparent, being robust in the way that you communicate. So what are some of the best practices or maybe even tips that you might share in terms of bringing that transparency to reality via communications? Talk to me a little bit about that. What really kind of precipitated all of this was, I mean, I joined the firm, I think in February of 2020. And within a two, three weeks of me joining the firm, the first shelter in place orders for COVID got passed out, which I mean, imagine just joining, you know, stepping into an investor relations role and you can't literally, you can barely even see your family at that point. <laughs> you know, so, you know, we kind of said, well, what do we need to do right now in order to give people, to make people feel the warm and fuzzy um, in one of the most, you know, times when people feel like their lives are out of control kind of thing. Um, and so the thing that we did is we moved from quarterly distribution schedule to monthly distributions because we kind of felt like sending a monthly like reassurance that, hey, you know, things are still on track and this is what we're doing, yada, 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 really kind of just re-solidified confidence or at least gave people some level of confidence. And that was accompanied by, we started to go to monthly investment updates that really kind of coincided with that monthly distribution. And what we really did with those monthly investments investment updates was that we broke it down into kind of four very tight areas that we reported on every month. And we reported on the same metrics in those four different areas. So like operational update, we're reporting on total revenue, rent collection percentage, NOI, delinquency, occupancy, uh, occupancy and leasing. We're, we're reporting on, you know, occupancy. What are we leased at? How much traffic was there? How many net leases? And what kind of concessions did we make that month? What were the community events in the last month with, you know, during COVID wasn't much, but community events. And then we would do basically a renovations update, what kind of community improvements and what kind of renovations were they? And we just, we report on the same important metrics and the same thing each month. And that really kind of encapsulates the majority of what is happening at the project or, you know, from month to month. And so the overwhelming majority of what we need to report on is covered in those four sections. And just by sending that same information, reporting on that same information, but not like turning a blind, blind eye to stuff that needs to be topically addressed. You know, I think uh, one of the more recent additions that we made to a monthly update was we did a loan narrative on what was going on with our loan and, you know, in relation to all the stuff that's happening right now, people were really appreciative about that. And we just kind of outlined you know, like, here's where the loan's at. We bought a cap, yada, yada, yada. And we just outlined all of that for people. But I think that just really kind of sticking to those four main areas and really kind of buckling down on what are the, the metrics that we really want to hit every month really kind of allowed people to have reference points and context. And it really kind of just gave them some comfort. You know, if there are problems, we're going to be reported or we're going to be told about them shortly. It's really amazing to see how when you break down the communication in categories like that and you remain consistent on the key performance indicators and you track the you know measurements from month to month to month, how that can inform your asset management team and the actual execution on the ground. So, you know, what a great takeaway for the listeners to say, well, okay, if I have a partner, if I have 50 partners, you know, this is a framework that I can integrate immediately. But also if I have one partner, maybe I have zero partners, maybe I'm the partner, you know, measuring and tracking these things, you know, it's it's so, so powerful. And it, it provides the narrative to say, well, how do we need to take action? How do we need to improve the operation? And, and how do we need to course correct in terms of our business plan? And, you know, working with asset management to integrate to investor communications, this is kind of a cohesive 360 degree um, relationship between teams. So talk to me a little bit about team because, you know, you guys, obviously yourself, I mean, you guys are, are very dynamic. You have many other aspects of the company, but how does the teamwork look? I mean, because you've got an investor relations team as well as asset management 
management, all these other things going on, property management. How does that sort of dynamic work? Right. So, I mean, I'm collaborating in this this sort of situation, like with communications and monthly updates to investors directly with the project managers. We have our vertically integrated property management team here. Got nearly a hundred or so employees now across the city managing our properties and then a handful of third party properties that are owned by other operators and GPs that we have really close relationships with. But basically what's happening is that, you know, those project managers are pulling all of the data on a monthly basis. And then that information is being reviewed by analysts and whatnot before it really kind of comes to me to make into a cohesive update to our investors. And so there is a huge, you know, from from around the first week to the middle of the month, the first week of the month, the middle week of the month, there's a huge amount of collaboration, communication, back and forth, confirming numbers, that kind of thing before it gets into our investors' hands, just to make sure that there's the highest probability of that information being as, you know, 100% correct. Because that to us is like one of the most important parts of, of vertical integration is like having those, that ownership of that information and and the, the function that the property management level is just a really, really important thing. I completely agree, man. And it's not an easy thing. It doesn't, you know, happen overnight. I mean, it comes out pretty and it comes out very smooth and clear. But, you know, if you guys are anything like us, it takes us a little while to to get from one end to the other. Yeah. And we're constantly iterating, you know, just kind of looking at like, what do the investors like from a reporting standpoint? You know, what is not really getting much uptake? And so like, we're, we're not constantly iterating, but like we do make tweaks, you know, every once in a while in relation to like what is being received and, and valued versus like how much work we're putting into the process. Because, you know, we're trying to stay lean, especially during a time like this. And so we're lo- trying to like make ourselves as, as effective as possible across as many places as possible. Justin, I want to switch gears just a bit and talk a little bit about sort of investing in yourself. Because what we've been really talking about are systems, processes, best practices for, you know, not only offering opportunities to others, but, you know, helping others sort of think through the psychology and, you know, the way that sort of mental dexterity plays into being an effective leader for an investor and a a set of investors. But talk to me about how you invest in yourself or how you are investing in yourself, because I'm a firm believer that our personal development is the leading indicator that leads to lagging indicator sort of positive performance, growth, optimal results in terms of your investments. I'm a firm believer. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in many others. But how are you investing in yourself? You know, we kind of talked about staying active. I was a very, very serious athlete growing up. And so that kind of just really instilled a certain level of discipline and work ethic in me very, very young to where now it's just like, I'm a very scheduled person. I like to keep on a schedule. I'm not like rigid or anything like that, but it's like, I kind of have like my major things on a daily basis that I have to do. It's like, you know, eat right. Which, you know, and then I only eat right. I try and only eat right about like five, six days a week. I give myself a day like trash. But generally, it's just like, you know, if I'm if I'm just trying to do some things 80, 90 percent well, most of the time, that's kind of what I'm trying to stick to. So, you know, working out five, six days a week, either by running, being outside or hitting the gym or whatever. I have to do that in order because I just I carry a lot of frenetic energy around with me just in general. I have to like work that out. I have to get it out. And usually it's it's out in a park running, you know, kind of thing. I meditate every day. That's the one thing I am rigid about is about 30 to 45 minutes every day around lunchtime or after lunch. I usually get a meditation and and that is a huge, huge part of me investing in myself because I know, I mean, like, you know, while I have a team and I have, I have amazing team 
hundred or so people around me. A lot of my work is sometimes done on my own, one-on-one with people outside of these walls. And um, I find that meditation, eating well, resting well, investing in myself, all the stuff that we're kind of talking about really adds up whenever I'm in that cold, dark place of a fundraise where I'm looking at a big delta, you know, a big red number and I'm, you know, I'm three weeks out kind of thing. It's like whenever I feel uncertain, that's where my meditation, that my practice and all of those sort of things really kind of reassure me that like if I, that I'm doing the right things and if I just keep doing the right things, the right outcome is going to come. Those sort of things really from a mindset standpoint, just kind of give me a really strong foundation whenever I'm at moments of uncertainty. So in terms of that meditation, I mean, are we talking about mindfulness meditation, kind of watching your breathing or these guided meditations? What does that actually look like? Sometimes it's just straight up breath work. I do a lot of guided meditation for anybody who is trying to get into that. And it's because I, I hear everybody just like, oh, I struggle with it so much. Give up and just start doing guided meditations because I was struggling doing, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day. And then finally, I just I'm going to have a do a guided thing. As soon as you do that, you'll actually start making some real progress in your practice. So uh, anybody who's struggling out there, I would just say just give up the pride and go for a guided practice for a while. And you just get good at it and comfortable with your interior landscape and ability to just get in your breath and, and suffer of your mind, I think that that's a very, very big thing that's kind of like led me to success in my business. It really resonates with me because as I'm sitting here having this conversation with you, you've been extremely calm, measured, present, and, you know, it really shows that obviously you've put in that work and, you know, I, I really can see that. And, you know, I'm a meditator myself, but what else do you feel like you gain by engaging in that daily practice? I mean, what else does that give you? It's really hard to describe sometimes because I mean, A, I actually get so much energy out of just five to 10 minutes of like slowing down clarity. It gives me a lot of clarity, especially in times whenever things are very like stacking up a lot. Like this week, this past week, like yeah, I was telling you about, been a very heavy ops related week, which is doing the investor communications across our portfolio, sending investor distributions. And so like during a time like this, whenever things very detailed oriented work, especially um, starts to pile up for me, meditation practice is incredibly important because when details and numbers start to add up on me, you just get that feeling like you're swimming. It's like a drowning feeling. Meditation, being able to slow down for a few minutes really kind of gives me clarity as far as like, what do I need to focus on here? And like, what do I need? You know, don't be so overwhelmed. Yeah, it's almost like a computer that has too many apps open at one time. It's like it needs to reboot. And one of the things I did a uh, I did a saltwater float one time. And I remember it was the first time I'd ever done it. And the guy was telling me he's like, what's going to happen is you're going to be swiping away. It's like the iPhone, you're going to be swiping away windows for about 45 minutes. And I, I think it had a 90 minute float, you're going to be swiping away those windows. And then you're going to start to feel the benefits. And it is interesting because you're like all your sensory is totally shut off. And so it's an, you're in a dark, basically pod there where you're laying there, you have no sensory feelings because you're actually floating in the salt water. And I almost feel like this is a practice that allows you to defrag your mind. You know, when you know, let's just say you're talking about all the detailed work that you know, really kind of bogs you down, maybe takes more energy from you. But if you can do this, if you can kind of reboot then you can go back with more renewed energy, more renewed focus. So I just like that mental imagery. You know, we all have a phone, right? It's a swiping away these windows and utilizing that for our brain. But we've got to give ourselves the opportunity to reboot because if not, we start to have bugs, we start to have problems, we start to slow down, we start to jitter. I just wanted to share that. 
your head is not a friendly place whenever you're overwhelmed. A lot of people are, they struggle with it because they're just like, oh, I'm trying so hard to to calm down and everything like that. But I'm just like, my, ba- my brain is so busy. And I just, I tell people, it's like, slow down and breathe. Your brain will follow your breath. Anytime you're feeling overwhelmed, just slow down and breathe and your brain will follow eventually. Man, that is really good. Give yourself some grace. Stop being so hard on yourself about not knowing what you're doing right now. Just like slow down, breathe and your brain will follow. I love that. Phenomenal advice. Justin, this is great, man. I want to transition into the rapid fire section of the podcast. It's called the rare air questionnaire. It's pretty rare that people allow their breath to be the leading indicator and allow their brain to then follow, unfortunately. But we're going to make it more common. Uh, I've got a few questions for you before I let you go today. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? Um, first one, Jeff Tweedy's How to Write a Song. It's all about instituting a creative practice in your life under the guise of learning how to write a song every day, which I think is a very disarming um, and intimidating. It's a very intimidating thing to try and force somebody to do or get somebody who's never written a song to do. It's intimidating for me. And I've tried to write hundreds of songs. But the way that he's done it is just all about really, you know, beginning and creating a a creative practice in your life. Love that. Another one, even though it's like, I don't really like the book, but it's just like such a mastery of the English language is a infinite jest by David Foster Wallace. It's a behemoth of a book. Uh, Just finishing it is kind of an accomplishment. <laughs> That's hilarious. I actually am um, thinking of a book that I just ordered and it just arrived yesterday. It's called The Rise and Fall of American Growth and Prosperity or something along those lines. And it's it's been a highly recommended book. It came, I mean, like, I'm not kidding you. It's like Harry Potter on steroids. I mean, it's like, how many pages is this thing? I think it's like a thousand pages or something, but uh, that that's going to be an accomplishment in itself to finish. But I love that, man. I love those examples of books. I'll put a link in the show notes for the listeners if they want to check out those books. What you're talking about is about training your brain and, you know, training certain skills that can be valuable for you, but also enjoyable. I mean, you know, one of the things that I learned years ago is if you want to build a reading habit, read things you're interested in. These sound very interesting. So I'll have to check them out myself. What's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, Justin? Spending time with my son. Love that. Love that. And what does that look like? I mean, is that just daily? How, how old is your son, by the way? He's nine. That could be hiking. I'm a gardener and he likes plants too. So that could be doing that kind of stuff, you know, going to nurseries, plant projects, whatever it is, you know, just whatever. We just like to spend time together. We don't ever have to really do anything. We just kick it. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Great reminder for all of us because, you know, again, a lot of times we talk about, hey, health is wealth. And, you know, if you're wealthy, if you don't have your health, then you really don't have anything. And so in addition to that, it's like you got to have your family. You got to have things that are important to you and you've got to stay consistent with being present and just, you know, it doesn't have to be this big production. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my purpose right there. And if I lose sight of that, then all this other stuff easily goes away very quickly. So what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you, Justin? consideration and care. I'm really good at, I think, taking care of people and like considering them, uh, who they are, how they are, that kind of thing. It's not something that I really dwell on or I guess think too much about, but it's just something that I have a knack for. And so, man, I want to acknowledge you. I love having conversations with people like you. And the reason why is because you're real and you're calm, you're present, and you're genuine. And I just want to acknowledge you for, you know, not only sharing your story and being willing to share your background and sort of your journey, but, you know, continuing to serve other people and continuing to offer opportunities and continue to uplevel your game. Because I'm a firm believer, man, if we don't uplevel our game, we can't serve anybody else. So I just want to acknowledge you. I want to appreciate you. Do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? No, I think I gave everybody plenty to chew on today. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just 
super happy to be here. Super grateful to have a conversation with you. And um, I had a great time today. Awesome, man. Well, appreciate you again for being on the podcast. Tell the listeners where we can send them to find you. Uh, you can email me at justin at djetexas.com or just go to djetexas.com in the bottom right hand corner. There is a prompt to schedule a 15 minute complimentary consultation that goes directly to my calendar. If you'd like to have a conversation with me. Beautiful. We'll put a link in the show notes is where the listeners can find you. Justin Liggett. Until next time, my friend, thanks again for being on Elevate Podcast. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you. Elevate Nation, Justin Liggett bringing massive value today. And I learned a lot from today's episode. I hope you did as well. I want to encourage you to identify your top one, two or three distinctions or takeaways from this episode. What was it that stood out for you today? What is the highest priority for you to integrate within your investing business today? What is also the highest priority for you to invest in yourself today that you learned? Maybe it was something that was said, maybe it was something that was not said. How can you invest in yourself? How can you improve your own performance, the way that you show up, the way that you interact with other people, the way that you build relationships, the way that you communicate, the way that you manage expectations, the way that you manage your focus, the way that you identify the way that your creative brain is integrated with your management brain. You know, think about all of those things. I think this opportunity or this podcast and this conversation was an opportunity for us to up level in so many different ways, whether it's through process through systems, through the way that we are, you know, executing, but also the way that we're showing up for ourselves the way that we're living a life of fulfillment could have had a takeaway to say, hey, you know what, maybe I need to meditate more. Um, because I think Justin proved that, uh, you know, there, there's a huge benefit in that in terms of the way that you show up, the way that you provide mental clarity and the way that you are communicating with other people with a calm energy. So I just really appreciated that enjoyed that I want to encourage you to have a discussion with a friend, of course, re listen to the show because repetition is the mother of all skill. If you listen, again, you're going to learn more. And you're going to learn more that perhaps you were surprised that you didn't hear the first time. I want to encourage you to learn and take massive action. Ultimately, the real learning comes through taking massive action. And guess what? Information is not power. Power is in taking action and failing forward. By the way, it's not going to be perfect, but I want to encourage you to enjoy that imperfection. This is all a journey. This is an adventure. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.